Hey there, Zach here. You may be wondering if something is wrong with your podcast feed, because this episode is clearly about AI when we already finished that miniseries. Well, that's, uh, that's my fault. I kind of released the wrong episode last time and got us all out of order. Honestly, I'm impressed I made it 85 episodes without messing this up. Hooray for me! This episode is a a sort of nice bow on the series, though. It's a really wonderful episode. We had lots of fun with it. We break down the difference between artificial intelligence, machine learning, and deep learning. We talk about the rights of non-organic beings, whether robots can convert to Judaism, and what our creations tell us about ourselves. So, without further ado, let's get this party started. listening to the Down the Wormhole podcast, exploring the strange and fascinating relationship between science and religion. This week, our hosts are Rachel Jackson, rabbi at Ogudis Israel Congregation, Hendersonville, North Carolina. And if I were stranded on a deserted island with AI, I would choose the AI computer from Star Trek Next Generation. Zach Jackson, UCC pastor in Reading, Pennsylvania. And if I were stranded on a desert island with one AI, I would choose Google Assistant because no one in my life knows me better. <laughs> I, I feel just, sad now. I'd be sad. <laughs> uh, Adam Pryor, I work at Bethany College in Lindsborg, Kansas. If I were stranded on a desert island with an AI... I would choose the mind uploading software from a book called MindScan, mm. which operates as a quasi AI, but allows you to then transport your consciousness into artificial bodies in other places. So I'd get the best of both. Uh, Ian Benz, Associate Professor of Elementary Science Education at UNC Charlotte. And if I had to be stranded on an island with AI, uh, Siri. Yeah, Siri. Kendra Holtmore, PhD candidate, Boston University. And if I was stranded on a desert island with an AI, I think maybe at this point I would go with R2-D2 because he just like always survives, you know? He gets into a lot of sticky situations and always comes out alive or always saves people who are in sticky situations. And being on a desert island, that's a sticky situation. So. Yeah. R2-D2. And I feel like he could probably tap into the midichlorians. Probably. See, so there you go. Maybe we are on the right track here. Thank you, Kendra. You're welcome. Not sure how that's how I'm not sure that I agree with you, but you're welcome. Yeah, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we kind of have a confusion of terms there. Um, (laughs) Ian's trying to make midichlorians from Star Wars into artificial intelligence, when I'm pretty sure in canon they're biological, but the terms here that we've been using the past couple of weeks are a little squishy and maybe we haven't clarified them super well. So since this is the last episode in our series on AI, um, we're going to kind of clarify some things and give some final thoughts for now. We'll probably revisit this topic in the future since this sort of technology is just happening so quickly into our lives. And especially with the rollout of 5G, I mean, that's going to be a whole other conversation about the Internet of Things and when you have refrigerators and toasters that are as smart as your iPhone is now. The world is going to look a lot different in the next couple of years when we will definitely still be podcasting. So, We want to answer a couple of questions that we ourselves have had and also tell you that we are going to be adding a Q&A segment to the end of every episode. So if you have questions that you want answers, if there's something from the episode that was unclear, if there is a pressing question you have in your mind, if you have any question whatsoever that is at least somewhat tangentially connected to the podcast then you can leave it on our Facebook page, on Twitter. You can email it to admin at downthewormhole.com. Any way that you can get in touch with us to ask that question, we want to answer it at the end of every episode. So please send that in. But the most pressing question today, what is AI? What is artificial intelligence other than a very sappy movie from the early 2000s? 
Well, we've kind of been using some of these terms interchangeably when we probably shouldn't have. So artificial intelligence is just an overarching term for any machine that acts like a human or has human-like intuition. So your Roomba that's able to tell that there's a chair leg and moves out of the way, that's artificial intelligence. The computer player in Mario Kart, that's artificial intelligence. The machine that uh, beat the championship Go player, that's artificial intelligence. But there's all these different branches of it that we just need to clarify real quick. So like at the most foundational level, you anything that has a set of stimulus and then response is artificial intelligence. So if you're programming something, all it needs to be is a series of if-then statements. So if there's a table leg in the way, then move for your Roomba. Um, So an example of of this kind of rudimentary level um, is all of the battles in Lord of the Rings. You know, when you have like tens of thousands of orcs and humans and elves and all of them coming at each other. That was a computer program called MASSIVE, which stands for Multiple Agent Simulation System in Virtual Environment. Um, One of those really forced acronyms. Um, Backronyms, right? Is that what they're called? So what that was, was each and every one of those characters had its own set of physics and its own awareness of what was happening around it. And they were told, attack. And if you encounter this, then this happens. And encounter that, then that happens. And so you do that on a large enough scale and you can have tens of thousands of orcs and humans and elephants and all kinds of things fighting each other. And the computer is determining each and every outcome based on a set of of commands. Um, Actually... (laughs) In early renders, the humans kept on losing, and so they had to keep modifying it. In in, in a couple of cases, when uh, the oliphants came over over the, the the side, the humans retreated, and, and they kept giving up because it was too hard, and uh, <laughs> which is such a human thing to do. So a lot of the special effects that you see are done like this. Um, so then one step into that, <clears throat> nested within that, if you think of it like a series of nested eggs, is machine learning. And this is artificial intelligence that gets smarter the more you use it. Um, basic machine learning has been around for a long time. If you've ever had to prove you're a human by answering a CAPTCHA, you know, show all of this, but click on all the squares that have a crosswalk. That's you are actually training an artificial intelligence by doing that. You are helping them to learn how to identify crosswalks so that that information can then be used by machines in the future for some other purpose. Um, This level of machine learning requires human input to say to it, this is a crosswalk, this is not a crosswalk. And then the artificial intelligence then takes it apart pixel by pixel, and enough input from humans will teach it what to look for and what not to look for. And then once it has a grasp on it, it can start doing it itself. And the more that it does it and is confirmed that that's the right thing, the better it gets. And so this process can take months and months and months of of teaching this machine the way that you would teach a child, that this is this, that is not that. Um, My local recycling plant has this incredible system driven by machine learning where it's got all these cameras and sensors and it can tell different types of plastic. And then it can sort them with machine arms and with all kinds of fun things that they can do to then sort the plastic faster than you could with humans, which then means that it can be more profitable and they can recycle more and be less wasteful. So like, that's pretty great. And the longer they use that system, the smarter it gets, the better it gets at determining different types of plastics and metals and whatnot. Um, So that's great. I'm totally into that. It takes a lot of human input though, in order to teach it. Um, So then the next level of nested egg of artificial intelligence is what's called deep learning. And this is the future. This is actually the present. If you've interacted with Google Assistant or Siri, 
um, or any kind of customer service, you have likely interacted with deep learning. Um, deep learning does what machine learning does, but it doesn't require humans to, um, to teach it first. So an example of this is Google's AlphaGo, which is a program, uh, the supercomputer that was created to beat a human Go player, the ancient Chinese game. And the thing about Go is that it has, I think it's, I read somewhere it's like a million times more potential. No, the difference between the potential moves in chess and the potential moves in Go is more than all of the atoms in the entire known universe. There is so much, so many different moves you can make at any different point. Um, whereas chess players are thinking about potential moves, a lot of times, like the best Go players are just feeling it. It's intuition for them. And so this is kind of the gold standard for teaching artificial intelligence to beat humans and to think like humans. So what they did was they they took this AI that they developed and they had it watch 100,000 games of Go. And so it's analyzing every single pixel of this and putting it through its neural network and breaking it all apart and deciphering the rules itself. And then after 100,000 times of watching it, it had learned the rules on its own because like it knew that this person won and this person lost and this person did this and this criteria was met. And so it learned the rules itself. Nobody had to teach it. It learned it itself. And then they set it to play against itself 30 million times. It simulated 30 million games against an older version of itself. So it would learn for a while, get a little bit better, and then face its previous self. And then that version would get a little better, and then it would face the version before it. So it's always facing a version that it can beat, but just by a little bit. And after 30 million times, it faced the number one champion Go player in the world and beat it, beat him in 2017. So it was, what, uh, five years, like four or five years ago that it, uh, it's, it's four. that this happened? Four, yes. Thank you for, thank you for math. <laughs> We're not yet in 2022. Um, so in this case, it took no human interaction for this thing to learn and then to be able to thrive. Um, They've got these playing old, um, old games from the 70s and 80s. Um, it learned how to beat Space Invaders overnight and just defeat the whole game without teaching it any of the rules. It just lost enough times to know how to avoid things and how to time things and all of that. What this requires, however, as opposed to machine learning and AI in the simpler senses, is a ton of data. So this required 10,000, 100,000 games of Go. It had to watch um, in order to figure out the rules of the game. So if we have a ton of computing power and a ton of data, then we can create systems that can teach itself how to best um, optimize itself and then is able to find avenues that the human mind is not able to find. So this is where we are now which obviously there are some issues with because if you're not being very careful about the data that you're feeding it, then the output is going to end up being potentially skewed. Um, on the other hand, because we're not intentional about which, we're, we're not uh, giving it specific data sets, we're giving it everything, it's able to make patterns that maybe we wouldn't have otherwise. It's already proven to be so effective at, at, at locating cancer cells, um, of uh, predicting stock movements, which is causing all kinds of issues, um, was one of the reasons why the GameStop stock went crazy, was because humans out, out thought the <laughs> algorithm and then crashed the stock market basically for a while. Um, <laughs> It's also uh, one of the things that's contributed to the crazy gerrymandering that we have now because the computer is able to run every simulation of every election we've ever had against population data and then determine the ideal gerrymandered district for how population growth is going to go and, and immigration and all of that to make sure that their people stay in power. 
So, like, there's a lot of potential in this kind of technology to be amazing. Like, imagine a shirt that was able to sense your body temperature and your sweat and the temperature and the forecast and then to be able to adjust its fit depending on your particular comfort level. So like the person who's like, I'm always cold. They don't have to be always cold anymore because your shirt knows you and it loves you and it wants you to be warm and comfortable. But at the same time, there's all kinds of potential issues with It'll that. still smell I'm, bad. It'll st- well... I was thinking about Depending. how do you wash a shirt like that? Unless it's merino wool. <laughs> Unless it's what wool? Merino wool. Sorry. Is that a, fancy wool? Which is I don't nice. know wool. Yeah. Very nice smell wool. resistant. Oh, very nice. I'm a simple man. I've been preparing for backpacking this summer, and that's why I know that. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway. I'm, an, an example of, <laughs> of the issues with big data. Okay, so all of these companies um, that are trying to teach computers how to talk and to communicate with humans naturally use um, these huge language models where they take communications from uh, spoken communications from television and radio and uh, podcasts even, and, and they take written communications from websites and emails and text messages, and they create models of, of the English language, let's say, and, and then are able to do the sort of predictive texts that you see. Or Google's able to translate websites just in a snap. There are some concerns, and one of the uh, a couple of months ago, the head of Google's ethics team co-authored a paper that uh, her name is uh, Timnit Gebru, and she co-authored a paper for a conference questioning some of the ethics behind this. Because if you're just gathering data just haphazardly, because you need a ton of data to make this kind of system work, if you're just gathering it from everything, and you know, Google, the Google algorithm has access to every Google Doc and every email and everything that you have ever used on their system, they have, that algorithm can access whenever it wants to. If you're just taking all of that in order to learn the English language, and you're not taking into consideration prejudices and violence and the awful things that make humans human, then you have the potential to create an algorithm that will, um, say, have implicit bias built into it the way that humans have it built into us because it's just the air we breathe. And so she questioned in this paper that, not specifically calling out Google, but IBM and Microsoft and everyone else that's doing it, And Google demanded that she retract her name from it. And when she refused, because she wanted to know who exactly it was that was censoring her and why they were censoring her and what she's allowed to say in her position and what she's not, they fired her. Though they they told everyone that she quit. Yeah, I remember that. She has said many times, I did not quit. (laughs) Uh, You, I, so you fired me. I don't work there anymore. And I didn't quit. That means you fired me. And they still kind of refuse to acknowledge that they fired her over questioning this kind of uh, potential issue with data. And so that's not a good look for Google um, because they are, this is kind of their business. They're in the business now of big data and predictive texts and they need to be on top of it. And it's a threat to their bottom line if, if people start questioning the ethics of it. And they start opting out of that. So that raises all kinds of issues about oversight, about um, trusting capitalist systems to self-correct for morality versus government systems for that as well. The potential for a self-learning machine to become smarter than us and realize it doesn't need us or the potential for it to fill in all of the gaps of our weaknesses and help to create a utopian society. It seems like the future is wide open and we are at a uh, a transitional tipping point right now. And that is my long intro into all things AI and machine learning and deep learning and the fear and the optimism of the future.
So can I ask a question then? No. You just did. Okay, well, I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> so all of the, it sounds like even, you know, maybe from the initial beginning of things that it still depends on human input in some way to, to then get things going. Is that accurate? Well, like humans have to create it? Either and create and then start it on the learning process. Until the Like it can't AI start starts. doing it on its own. Like from the, the initial outset. Like it doesn't start on its own, right? Like I, I don't it, think anything does, doesn't, I mean, sorry to jump in, Zach. No. Doesn't, does anything start on its own? Right, like you're a father. Did your children start on their own? That 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 uh, that topic will come up in a later episode, Rachel. You know, like <laughs> <laughs> it will too. It's on the schedule. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it is. Just, just more of a question, like not that they came into existence on their own, oh, but yeah. that as you're raising them, they don't just know what you expect of them. Right, and but, and so for me, I don't know why we would expect anything different at this point until AI creates its own AI, and perhaps that's because I was watching Agents of Shield, where AI is creating AI, and I just want to cry. Um, and how how the, the sort of sci-fi horror that comes with that, but I think for me, the analogy is absolutely each one of those things, right? It's very much a parent-child relationship for for those circles within a circles, how much input is someone giving it? Or how much are you just being taught to do on your own and a whole lot of garbage in, garbage out? But I guess what I'm saying is, is that, I guess where I'm trying to go with this is that being that it always, like, even if AI gets advanced enough to the point where it can create its own AI, the initial AI still had to depend on human input to get going. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, all of our biases, all of our motives, all of our garbage that's my point. That's is, my point. is going to be a part of it until somebody right. teaches it or trains it to remove it, in my opinion. But I, I think that's what's terrifying about deep learning is that it yes. it's not reliant on that. Like so this is what's this is what's notable about the AlphaGo experiment, right? So this this experiment where they're playing Go, right? So like it's not just that AlphaGo beat Lisa Dole. It beat Lisa Dole three times in a row. And the second time it beat Lisa Dole, it made a move that no Go player thought was a good move. Hmm. It made a totally novel move. It's in fact changed the way that Go players play by analyzing this game. So okay. it, it took... It, so like um, mathematicians will describe this in terms of like a, a local maximum, Right. Go players had reached a local maximum in the landscape of potential Go moves that one could make. And everyone thought that was the highest point. Alpha Go utterly creatively changed the strategy by which the game is played. It found a new maximum in the landscape of possibilities. Right. That, that's the piece of deep learning that it was not reliant on human beings. Okay. It was not taught to do it. It was a completely novel structure structure that so it, it came up with invented on its own. Yes. All on its own. Yes. Like it this was not from analysis nope. of oh I re- you know the thing was able to remember a move in the past. This was totally This was a own. totally novel move. Okay, so that's really interesting. Right. That's what the old ones, like Watson, when they're playing chess, they would look at the board and all possible moves and then would plan ahead for all possible moves like three times in the future. That is kind of rudimentary machine learning. This one got creative. But that creativity, I mean, I don't know, that, that creativity still is based on what the AI has learned from humans. It's not that the novel move, yeah, maybe like humans had never done that before, but it's like a process of elimination of what didn't work that humans had done. And so the novelty is still Mm-mm. sort of playing in opposition to human mistakes. No, it's it's because that would be so that would be a that would be a machine learning instance, right? That would be where there's a set algorithm. It analyzes all of the potential moves that would be available and then chooses the best one. Right, but what if in the this best case, one is one that was never chosen? But in this case, it's not working that way. It's modifying the algorithm. 
Huh. And that's where the deep learning comes into play. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's creepy. Yeah, a little okay. bit. Okay, well, that, that kind of, um, I mean. It is still I, like children, though. I mean, like, I think that's still like a good, like, an out, like, right? Like, but there comes a point, right, where those children start making decisions on their own. Exactly. Right? Utterly independent of the places from which they came. Deep learning is rapidly approaching that place. And it's if not already crossing over into it. And just like with children or, you know, and I'm not I'm not saying children as in a particular age set, but the parent child relationship, uh, looking at them going, you know, you can have that moment of like, wow, where did that come from that? I'm now seeing you. It's no longer what I'm teaching you and you're aping back to me. It's like this was you. And then there can be that moment of like, oh, my God, (laughs) what is this? Like, what did I create? And where is this coming from? Like the the parents of psychopaths. Like, I did not create that. <laughs> they right. did huh. that all on their own. Uh, so, I, you know, again, I, I really like the analogy that a, where we are with AI and deep learning and the, all the concentric circles um, is still really a parent-child relationship. This has, this has a very Genesis 3 feel to it. Yeah. Where, like, God creates these <laughs> creatures that have advanced knowledge and gives them a set of of do this don't do that but i'm gonna let you go and learn on your own and then i want to be god too let me eat this apple that does make me think about skynet from terminator and when you really think about it right they wanted to pull the plug on skynet because they realized that skynet was learning on its own and becoming better like learning faster and becoming dangerous to humans and so they tried to pull the plug but by then it was too late. I mean, like, this is the thing to me, right? Like, Skynet is, like, the, 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 like, the best example of this, right? Because the only thing human beings have going for us is that we're better at structuring context, right? We are never going to win the, like, data processing game. Computers have beat us out on that for a long, long, long time. And it's only, the distance is only growing further, right? Um it's, it's when you reach this point with deep learning that uh, algorithmic systems produce better analyses of context than humans do, which is really what Skynet does, right? Like it's, it's gathering all this data and then suddenly can produce a better vision, right, of what the original outcome that it sought is than what humans, you know, would argue was okay. Or like Vicky from iRobot. Ah, if you, yeah, that's another good example. That, that would be a really good example of realizing, so Vicky, and I think there's even a part in that film where Vic, like when they realized that the one who's been doing this, you know, bad stuff the whole time was Vicky. And it, she talks about, I think something like realizing that humans were unable to do these things for themselves. And so Vicky felt like it was time for me to take over. Because humans are too dangerous and all that kind of stuff. And then it just, yeah. All the problems that exist are because of humans. So let me take over and I'll fix everything by killing all the humans. <laughs> it's not very nice. But yeah, but also pretty of, rational. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Go ahead, Kendra. <laughs> well, no, just this conversation is uh, making me rethink or maybe not rethink, but I, I'm just wondering about like the usefulness of um, this frame, like comparative framework that uh, someone published an article. I think it was in uh, Scientific American or um, somewhere. I, I can look and send that to Rachel. But uh, he he's a scientist and um, was talking about like the way to think about AI it's something that has evolved or like is evolved rather than engineered. Um, and that, you know, I think sort of like colloquially, especially for people who aren't scientists making robots, uh, we think our, our like gut reaction is like, oh, someone made that. Someone like engineered this robot to perform this function. And that mm-hmm. that, you know, like on some level is true, but it's not actually 
the end game of AI in like the grand scheme of like what humans are trying to do with AI, like even our conversation about, you know, the 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 goals of like being better and better with each generation of AI, like they're vastly outpacing a lot of our like human abilities already. And that's just like continuing to happen at greater degrees. Um, and so there is an evolution uh, like of, of these things. It's always been that way. But I guess like the, the main point uh, of that comparison between like evolution versus engineering is that um, thinking about AI in terms of evolution is more like thinking about human intelligence and like the evolution of humanness. <laughs> um, yes. And that there's something very similar, maybe like eerily so, <laughs> that robots are, you know, that's like what we're doing. And I, I think the the example that I think it was Rachel who a few minutes ago like brought up the kind of analogy to like a child or like that parent-child relationship that, you know, there is like a starting, like a baseline of what AI is and what it knows, but it you have to have like mechanisms in place for it to to grow and learn, and that a, a simple engineering task where you're creating a thing to solve issue A, there's not an an implied uh like growth or like evolution factor in a simple engineering task. Um, I mean, it can be, but not always. And so I just, I, I think that's really interesting because I, I just like evolution, like, I, I guess I'm struggling always with like what the morality of, uh, uh, like what, what are the implications of this, the morality of AI? Because uh, like thinking about, um, the evolution of AI and in that one day, it's just going to like, or, you know, apparently I've been misunderstanding robots and it's already like creatively coming up with novel solutions. Um, that uh, evolution is kind of this like opportunistic, amoral system, I guess. That's how I would think about it. Um, and so whether you're talking about uh, AI in terms of engineering or evolution, you still have these like social political issues and that doesn't go away. And it's a little concerning because I, I think that like some scientists will see themselves as outside of that problem, uh, like science for the sake of science, seeking the truth, uncovering whatever is before us, whether that's good or bad. And there's something really exciting about that ideal, but like it's out of we don't like live in a vacuum and you can't you can't like seek that kind of big T truth without considering these other contextual factors of implications for harm and and things like that, which is, you know, what we've been talking about. So anyway, that the other thing I wanted to say is that this uh, sort of relates to, I think, one of the first episodes we recorded um, about personhood and just thinking about the kinds of AI that are so much like uh, us, I'm just wondering about future conversations where, you know, like we talk a lot now in the 21st century about human rights and the importance of human rights. And, you know, where there are a lot of people who always have, but, you know, now the, these groups, you know, look in different forms of like uh, animal rights and, you know, like hardcore like veganism and, and things that are trying to like bring animals into the picture and, you know, reevaluate, especially the ways that the West treats nature. <laughs> um, and I just am really curious about how uh, robots are going to make us reconsider even the value of like human or animalness and like what will be our big common denominator? Is it is it personhood? Or is it something else? Because personhood is, I think, can include robots, but um, it's still kind of this like weird amorphous category. And human rights is just something that I think, especially for like liberals, is like this big, like that's the ideal. We want everyone to like 
benefit from human rights and, you know, we want to like not torture animals too. (laughs) Um, And just like how that conversation, which is like general and really common in a lot of our circles, um, uh, how will that change with those smart robots all around us? Zach, I want to make sure that you had some time. I had the first 20 minutes. (laughs) I'm good. (laughs) I was thinking the same thing about everyone else. (laughs) Ian. Can we go back to the AlphaGo thing real quick? (laughs) Just because I'm just curious. So I was, I found a Wired article about it, right? And started thumbing through and it was, you know, back to what you're saying, Adam, that it, that move showed that, you know, it's creativity that it was able to do something that's never been done before on its own. And right here, it talks about this article I'm reading in Wired Magazine. Um, that particular move wasn't the moment where the machines began their rise to power over our lesser minds. That move was the moment machines and humanity finally began to evolve together. Right. So this is that like, I mean, I think Kendra's thing about like engineering versus evolution for thinking about this is is really critical. Like, because we do think of machines as engineered objects, right? And that is not what is happening at this point, right? Like, what I think is like most interesting, terrifying, sort of like strategically helpful potentially um, about the way algorithmic learning occurs, which is really like, also I keep using the phrase algorithmic learning. You could substitute deep learning, right? All deep learning is a form of algorithmic learning at this point. So like what's like both terrifying and potentially helpful about algorithmic learning is this place that it has reached where it allows a new context for local systems to be discovered. It opens up a new way of seeing the data that sits within a a given field, field of analysis. Now, at least in my area of the world, academically, we we might call that meaning formation. And that I think is the sort of like, that Wired article is I think reading AlphaGo, reading the situation that occurred as AlphaGo forming new meaning out of this particular landscape of the game. Now, is that what happened? I'm a little more suspect, right? Like there's a level of, intentionality and consciousness being projected right onto that situation in order to say that machines and humans are learning together right now are they evolving together right is are we suddenly in an age where this sort of algorithmic deep learning means humans engage their environment in ways that previously were totally unimaginable Yes, I'm on board with that. Like, I, I'll, I'll point to this moment with AlphaGo and say, like, that may be the moment where Homo sapiens die. If we looked at this millions and millions and millions of years from now, like that might be the demise of our species. So happy right now. I don't, I don't think that's a bad thing. <laughs> I'm not ready to die. I'm too young. <laughs> I like my I like our species. And that I'm still alive. I mean, the Neanderthals like their species too. Good, fair point. I'll give and, you that. Yeah, and, really and that's where I was, that's, our minds. <laughs> <laughs> that's where I was going. You know, that's where I was thinking about this. You know, if we if we really toy with this idea of evolution and AI, we don't. There's um, a passivity or an activity 
in my head, right? Engineering means that we are actively doing something and evolution is there's sort of a passiveness that it's that it is happening or happens like you just said, the Neanderthals like themselves too, and yet they're not here either. And part of that is not the evolution of them, but the evolution of us. And then we killed them, right? Right. Or absorbed them. Right? <laughs> and cool. absorbed them. I'm part Neanderthal. Yes. Um, like two, three percent or something like that, right? Like absorbed, killed, those things. Um Perhaps those things. Those so people. The, no, 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 not those things like people, but those things like those changes. I'm not that harsh, right? Resistance is futile. You understand this. Um, right. So maybe if we initially engineered machines, machine learnings, that then has, with our evolution and our engineering, we're sort of making that deep learning, turning into AI. AI then, over X number of hundreds of years, then evolves beyond where we started from. And if that then is our demise, then perhaps isn't that our Homo sapiens evolution? Right, that 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 we have all these branches, and it's not necessarily a fatalistic perspective, but it is much more of a geological time perspective. Right, human Homo sapiens have have been around for a blink of an eye. Um, not nearly as long as Homo Neanderthals were around. Exactly. Mm. Exactly, and and who knows how many more iterations before that that we just don't even know about, and how long they were around, and. Why why do we think that us human beings are so much more specific and special that we would get to last, you know, 160 million years like dinosaurs did? You know, why I, I, I just don't see, you know, I don't I don't have an issue with Homo sapiens no longer existing. I again, not a death wish. Not saying that I want us to die now, <laughs> but but recognizing that in the grand scheme of things, of things on this planet, if that's if that's where we're going to go through our own evolution, then that's that's an okay thing. It's not our demise, like Adam is saying. It's <laughs> that. No, that's, let's let's be clear. It is our still demise. our demise. No, no, <laughs> I don't, don't want to let you off the hook that easy. Like. There's there's demise there. There may be progress also. I'm okay with that. Okay. But it is still the demise of Homo sapiens. As we know it now. Yes. Yeah. Okay. As right. Thank you. Demise, yeah. evolution. What's the difference really? Uh, potato, I potato. Mean. <laughs> but so to me, like what's interesting well, maybe, about this? Or maybe we'll be together. Sorry, Adam. But like maybe we'll be together. I don't think that's gonna go well for the like like not as fast thinking Homo sapiens. Let me just say that hasn't traditionally gone real well for those species. But I'm just we'll be no, pets. Think, think about. Yes. <laughs> oh my God, we'll be pets. We'll be, that is no, no, terrifying. we won't be pets. We'll be in zoos. I'd be an excellent pet. We'd be in zoos. Have you have you read the Sparrow? No. Okay, yeah, you need no, to read no. the Sparrow and think about that before you decide you want to be a pet. Um, uh, I will just tell you if you haven't read the Sparrow, it is Jesuits in space. It's worth reading. Jesuits. <laughs> Is this just making sure? Mary Doria Russell? Mar Mary Doria Russell. Yeah. Okay. It's I'm brilliant. Oh, it's, a, it's a brilliant book. Also, please don't read it when you're feeling happy. Because um, <laughs> you will not feel happy at the end of you it. You will not feel happy at the end of this book in any way, shape, or form. But all told, even if it is the demise of Homo sapiens, which I think it is, or a, you know, a lovely vision of progress where homo sapiens now <laughs> live in a utopia with these machines and we're not just pets um I, I i look at this though and i i do go like i feel like that's really challenging for religious traditions mm. like i think most religious traditions have a sense of the sacredness of the human and that gets translated to homo sapiens very very specifically and i and i think this is sort of like an interesting place where i i really do think Deep learning is starting to push a boundary for religious traditions to rethink themselves. Maybe not all, but I'll, I'll at least speak from my right, like uh, Lutheran Christian version of this, right? It's really hard for me to square any kind of eschatology that we've usually talked about 
in those traditions with a vision of Homo sapiens not being permanent fixtures until the rapture. Right? That's that's pretty hard to square. It's it gets kind of harder for me to sort of do a usual Christology where, you know, Jesus the Christ shows up at this very particular point in time if Homo sapiens aren't going to be the last species of human beings on this planet. I mean, I think there are ways to do it, but but it's a there are some creative theological questions that I think really emerge from taking this idea seriously. If you don't have those two things, though, right? Because only some religions have those two things. Would it would it work? Well, and what I would say is like I wonder: Are would other religious traditions have their own questions that they have to ask in the face of this? I don't. Right. I don't think all all of them ask the same question by any stretch right. of the imagination. Like I'm but, thinking about you know from my my corner of the world, right? I'm thinking that in Judaism, you know, what. What is the ultimate goal for for the existence of humans or the existence of Jews or the right? Like what what is happening next? Not the rapture, not right a second coming, not a messianic age figure um, that says the world is now fully repaired and it will continue to exist in a place of wholeness and peace. It allows for anybody. To participate in that. In fact, it it requires anybody and everybody to participate. And if you were at one point a righteous person or specifically a righteous Jew, you then get to return in that in that messianic age and you know, sort of heaven on earth, right? Gone Aden, the Garden of Eden comes once more. Um, for us to live happily ever after. And there's no problem with, well, what if it's not me? Or, right? Well, what but I, I think thing? maybe then, so as I'm listening to you, right, like the question that would start to emerge for me in my like philosophy of religion sort of side of things would be like, okay, so can there be a righteous Jew that's not a homo sapien? It feels like there would be internal debate about be. that. I don't actually no. I mean, only because Jews debate about everything. I mean, we'll see, right? Be, beyond that question, um, my gut reaction is, why not? I mean, if we, if we're not already limiting ourselves to Jews, then we're opening ourselves to everyone. And if we're opening ourselves to everyone, then why couldn't that everyone include an AI? I'm just optimistic and positive. I don't know. Maybe I'm just in the right religion. I don't know that either. (laughs) There's nothing that brings my heart more joy than just hearing you say, maybe I'm in the right religion. (laughs) I'm going to hold on to that for a while. I just, I just want you to know. (laughs) I say you're always optimistic too. Heavy stuff. I'd say you're both. I, I would bet that there are scholars, though, in different religious traditions who who would be able to say, like, there are questions in our questions or propositions or concepts within our tradition that have to be rethought in light of Homo sapiens not being a permanent feature into the far future. Yeah, I I think like everything that you're saying, Adam, makes a lot of sense, but I I also think there's a version of, like, Christian um, eschatology and Christology that, on the one hand, you're right, like, people will have issues with the, you know, homo sapien piece. But there's another side of that where I feel very similar to what Rachel is saying, where I'm like, yeah, Christians will be fine with it, and they adapt and make up stuff all the time. For <laughs> That's why I have a job. <laughs> yeah, so I just think, you know, it, it'll be— like the same as it's always been, like more hardcore conservative interpretations will maybe be more troubled by this. Um, but I think 
Christianity has also always done uh, a version of like very liberal and open and like metaphorical <laughs> interpretation that definitely can survive without Homo sapiens, however we may feel about that. Um. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that would be the case. I I do think though that you end up with. <clears throat> I'm gonna I'm gonna go with this since you know Rachel's in the right religion, right? I think there are winners and losers out of these like traditions as a result. Like there are, we, we, look, we can use the evolutionary example, right? There are. Uh, evolutionary streams of various religious traditions that get closed off if you start taking this seriously. Well, so I'm, what I'm really curious about, I yeah, keep tell us. coming back to this alpha go thing. Like, <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, if, it's, if you really think about it, that is really amazing that this <laughs> happened. Right? Right. Like, it's only because Go is not popular. You have to figure out how to like sign up for the Go Championship or something. Like, no, really I want to know. I've never played the game, so I would probably do pretty badly. But no, my my point is is that so this this um, article that I have from Wired Magazine is like 2016. So what's happened since then? Hmm. Like, if this was kind of a a, a pivotal moment. In machine learning and deep thinking, what I mean, Adam, are you aware of anything like that since then has happened? That's well, been even like more like holy moly, I can't believe that happened. So it's it's interesting to me that like after this moment, my understanding is that the Deep Mind team, like so the folks who did Watson, the folks who did AlphaGo, like they have shifted onto more substantial issues, uh-huh. things like climate change analysis, oh. right? Very specific, like, like targeting this type of deep learning to specific problems. So like Zach mentioned, like at the beginning, um, like cancer, cancer reading, right? So um, training algorithms to be better interpreters of uh, MRI scans and CAT scans than human technicians, right? That's an active project going on at a couple of medical schools. Um, You start to see these very, they tend to be like highly targeted problems right now um, Mm -hmm. in terms of stuff that I'm thinking about. Um, There are some like creativity ones. Um, I I taught an interdisciplinary class with a math professor on this and um, Charles Dusatoy wrote a book called The Creativity Code that covers like uh, some of the like latest things. And he starts like with AlphaGo and then works on other places. And the the book is framed around like, will we reach a point where um, deep learning is more creative about mathematics than mathematicians are? Hmm. Um, It's like a, a sort of like problematizing question, but there's some really interesting examples along the way of, you know, like the Action Jackson right? Um, which is a machine painting system. Um, mm. Some other music is a big area, right? Where there are good AI projects working to do composition work. Um, Pretty cool. So, so on the one hand, there are some like kind of like pet projects in the creativity realm. There, there are a series of like, I think specific medical and environmental technologies where you're seeing this used pretty robustly. Um, There was a good piece in the New York Times magazine on where AI, particularly deep learning systems, will end up replacing a variety of middle-class jobs. Actually, that was the final, one of the final assignments for the students in the class was would their job that they want to pursue be replaced by AI in their lifetime. Well, that's a great mm. assignment. Uh, most of them said probably and that, you know, that, you know, ultimately there's something about their humanness that would prevent them from losing their job specifically. We talked a little bit about that, I think, in a you know, in a previous mm-hmm. episode, too, where we said, like, some of us, like, our jobs are secure. Mm-hmm. My job's not going anywhere. Yeah. Um, I, Mine definitely I, will go away. 
I, I mean, I'd be shocked, part actually. Yeah, yeah, part of it will be. Part Certainly part of it would. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that I just wanted to sort of end on that we've been dancing around but not really talking about is our human relationship to AI in terms of what will our relationship be uh, if we're looking at relational or transactional. Um, those are sort of the buzzwords these days for how to how to be inside a community. Like, are you treating – is your community, is your uh, – place of worship, transactional? Are you fee for service? Um, Or are you relational? And that's how you get people to stay members um, or to stay engaged, not just a membership. Because it goes much more beyond those buzzwords of the last half decade. And for me, it goes further back to Martin Buber and the idea of not just where is God, but where are we and how are we? using the ideas of I-it or I-thou relationships. And for Buber, Buber said that we can have an I-it relationship with another human being, and most of us do almost all the time. Right, The person that at the grocery store, the person, the bank teller, um, any delivery service, even friends, even a, rather acquaintances and coworkers, most of them are I-it relationships. Uh, very based in transaction, I will do for you only because you do for me. And that's sort of how we just can live our life. And the antithesis to that is the I-thou relationship. The I see you as you and want to be in relationship with you, not because of what you can do for me. And that is that can be true for every person and also with things, you can have an I-thou relationship with a tree. And I, I love that one. Like, I was like, yes, I have, a, I, have a, I have an I-thou relationship with my tree. And if we take that concept, how, right, this is, this is sort of my hopeful, uh, optimistic view of where we can go with this. No matter what it is, the, the it that we're talking about, if it's a deep learning, if it's an AI, if it's, if it's, if it's Rosie, if it's your Roomba, you can have the I-thou relationship with it, uh, with the object, with the creature, with the, the something in front of you, and you're better for it as, as is that thing. And, and, Wherever wherever we end up going with it, that's that's the perspective, and that for me is what I can contribute to these relationships. Um, what my perspective and how I perceive the thing across from me. Adam smiling. So so I want to know, do you do you say thank you to Siri or Google or Alexa when when you ask it questions? Almost always, and it changes that I have I have Alexa, and. It changes the sound of its voice, um, and it'll give me two or three phrases back, such as "you betcha," and it's like this really fun. Um, it's this really fun statement of like, "Oh, you're welcome." Now, just FYI, if you say "I love you," it does not say "I love you back." Um, it says, you know, like "thank you," which is really smart emotional learning. So you don't find to get that attachment to this object. So that that I believe is the programmers because it's not yet capable of doing that. But maybe we'll get to a point of Hal and Eureka, right? The the TV show Eureka, where he's married to a house. <laughs> so I I will say I I tell Google thank you all the time, <laughs> whenever whenever I ask Google something. Um. But what it did make me recognize is that um, I don't say thank you to my cats. Right, As we talk about like I, thou, I, it relationships. Right, but you don't like your cats. You even tell your cats that you kind of hate them. So. I know. So, so this is the, like, but when we ask, like, can we have a closer relationship with machine learning, deep learning, than we do with other creatures, right? right? Like, I don't even have to go all the way to a tree. I can just go to the cats in my house, right? Right. Like, I mean, when they get up on the counter, the thing I shout at them is nobody loves you. Right. So, like, I mean, I don't shout nobody loves you, Google. I say thank you. You have a deeper relationship with your Google than you do with your cat. Yeah. I think that's a perfect example, you monster. (laughs) 
This has been episode 85 of the Down the Wormhole podcast. Thank you for coming on this journey with us and especially to all you who have helped us to spread this work by sharing with your friends or leaving us a review wherever you get your podcasts. That's really huge. Thanks also to our patrons on Patreon for helping us to make this podcast happen. If you'd like to donate to the cause, you can find us at patreon.com slash down the wormhole podcast. And make sure you send in your questions for our new Q&A segment as well. So hit us up on Facebook, Twitter, or through our website at downthewormhole.com. 